Well, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that something of what we've been singing, singing about this morning, your sovereignty, and Lord, just this last song reminded to us of that day when Isaiah, Isaiah went into the temple and he was able to see a glimpse of just those singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And Lord, may we today in this time that we share together uh, experience and even sense, Lord, your mighty, holy greatness in our midst. We cannot manipulate this. We, Lord, stand in need of your spirit at work through your word and through your people, we pray. And as we turn to the word this morning, open our hearts and ears, enable us, Lord, to go forward in ways that please you and honor you. And we do pray for your strengthening today, the church and building us up in the holy faith. Amen. So do take up your Bible and put that differently. Do take up the Word of God. Let's hear what God has to say. And this morning we're going to be uh, focusing on quite a large portion of uh, the book of Exodus. A number of chapters, in fact, but I'm only going to read from Exodus chapter 7. And so do follow with me in your Bible. Uh, Chapter 7 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts My people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, and Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and they would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Just going to read uh, so far. Well-known section of the book of Exodus as we come to this passage telling us about all sorts of very strange and amazing happenings. And uh, to begin with, in the passage that I read, uh, speaking there of 
Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff, we could say a stick, uh, becoming a snake, becoming a serpent. It's followed by the ten plagues. And uh, I'm going to remind you of what they were later on. I'm going to try and show you some of the significance of those uh, particular plagues. Uh, the water in the Nile River turns to blood. Suddenly there is an abundance of frogs and then gnats or lice and, and then flies and, and dead animals everywhere. And then the people break out in boils and sores and there's a terrible hailstorm and, and, and swarms of locusts and, and darkness when it should be light. And then finally we see the firstborn children uh, dying throughout the land. How do you understand this? What, what is God saying to us? What is He revealing to us so many thousands of years later now from this national catastrophe that really was uh, destroying the land of Egypt and, and the people of the land of Egypt? Now there are two pathways that people follow. The one particular pathway, there are those who are skeptics and cynics, and it's not just those who are agnostic or atheist, but sometimes even within the professing Christian community, there are those who will say and respond, no, this is a genre of literature that belongs in the category of the tooth fairy. Father Christmas and, and, and the Easter bunny are, 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 are similar kinds of stories. And, and, and so we need to recognize, we need to understand that this is not a historical record of what actually took place, but instead this, this has been written and, and recorded and passed down as religious myth. And there's a purpose attached to religious myth, they would say. These are necessary stories to perpetuate a particular message, to perpetuate a particular allegiance, bolstering and promoting a religious identity, a credibility seeking to be given to a group of people of faith. Now that particular pathway is known as naturalism. It is a denial of anything that is supernatural, anything which is above and outside of the laws of nature as they would specify. It is their view that uh, not only are some that say, no, there's no such reality as God, or those who say, well, there may be a God or there is a God, but this God is unable to override the laws that he has put in place. There's another view. Here at Central, we believe this other view. It is that we have no problem, we have no issue in believing that God, this God who created this world, this God who designed these laws and put them in place, this God who sustains this world that we live in and provides everything that we need day by day, the air we breathe, the, the, the very functioning of the world and the planets and the bodies, that this God is able to intervene and to override the very things that He put in place. So God is not subject to the laws He made, but that which He made is subject to Him. So we have no problem 
In the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans in chapter 4, verse 17, we have no problem with God who gives life to the dead. There's a miracle. There's the impossible. There's the intervention in the supernatural laws. And this God who calls into existence, who has called into existence, things that do not exist. The God who is able to make nothing and does make nothing out of nothing. I wonder how many boys and girls here today have been taught uh, the shorter catechism. So when my kids were little, or four of them, I would teach them uh, day by day uh, this shorter catechism, which is uh, a question, and they would then have to repeat the answer to me. And so in preparing this message, one of those questions came to my mind. It is this question. Can God do all things? Can God do all things? What is the response? Is he right? I'll tell you what the answer to the catechism is. God can do all his holy will. Can God do all things? God can only do, or God can do all his holy will. And so we've seen and, and, and do see on one occasion in the Old Testament, it was God's will to extend the length of a day. On another occasion, he brought uh, uh, about the reality of, of people being healed and raised from the dead. We see the example in the book, at least in the New Testament, with the laser, raising of Lazarus. As we come to this Christmas time, we will particularly be facing, on the, facing the, the, the truth of the birth of Jesus. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born to a virgin. This is God doing, intervening in nature and doing all His holy will. We've noticed in the New Testament the changing of the weather. And, and then ultimately that great miracle of Jesus being raised from the dead. So a very important answer to that question. Can God do all things? God can do all His holy will. I want to add another comment about miracles. And it is something we need to keep in mind and, and think about. But as we look back over the Bible and the course of history, we find that God will do miracles does do miracles when they are serving his purposes, when they are the unfolding of his eternal wisdom, and when they bring about glory to his name. Very important that we think regularly of those three categories. Uh, miracles are not just random uh, uh, events or, or random uh, experiences. They are for God's purposes. They are done according to His wisdom, eternal wisdom, and they are, of course, for His will. Now, there have been various seasons which we've seen a concentration of miracles uh, during the time of Moses, and, and we're going to deal with some of that today. Also, if you read on in the Bible during the season and ministry of Elijah and Elisha, uh, many things were, were done uh, Acts floating, uh, for example, on, on a river. And then during the time of captivity, uh, we have Daniel. is not eaten up by the lions. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace, and, and they're not consumed. 
And then during the time of, of, of Jesus and the establishment also of the early church and what we call the apostolic era, there, there are many miracles that are performed. But I want us to, to deal this morning with some aspects of uh, the miracles that God does from this passage. And I want to try and draw some application uh, for us living today. And I want to begin, my first point is that miracles reveal something about God. Something we can learn about who God is. The first is that God reigns supreme. Now, there's a cliche. We speak of God's sovereignty. We speak of God's power. But, but let's see something of this demonstrated and illustrated uh, in this passage uh, before us today. So we find Moses and Aaron. They're standing now for the second time in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is like the king. He's in charge of Egypt. And God uses these two men to perform a miracle that will demonstrate this truth that God reigns supreme. So Pharaoh in chapter 7 and verse 9 of Exodus demands a sign. In other words, prove to me your credentials. Remember, he had said before, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so he's asking now for a miracle. He's asking for some kind of unusual manifestation or sign. Well, Aaron responds and he throws this staff, it's a walking stick, I guess, or uh, a rod to the ground. And when this rod hits the ground, it becomes a snake. Pharaoh calls his magicians and sorcerers, and they do exactly the same thing. They do the very same thing. But immediately, in response to these magicians, uh, Aaron's staff gobbles up uh, the magician's staff. Now, there's a demonstration here. God is showing through Moses and Aaron that he is superior to Pharaoh. Because serpents were the emblem of Pharaoh and his power. The headdress, I said this in a previous sermon, uh, featured a, a cobra, a raised cobra snake. And the fact that Aaron's serpent devoured all the other serpents is the demonstration. It's the declaration that God is supreme over Pharaoh. And that repeats itself in the ten plagues that follow. In each instance, and I'm going to show you some of them, in each instance, it is God asserting through His servants, demonstrating to this powerful man called Pharaoh, the supremacy that God has over all other gods, lesser gods. So we know that the Egyptians, in the first instance, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. And uh, the god of the Nile, his name was... H-A-P-I. I'm not sure if it's happy or hoppy, but that was the name of the God. And, and this God was known to be the water bearer, the one who provided water and therefore the, the, the sustaining of life in their context in Egypt. So what does God do? He turns the water into blood through His servants, showing that 
he is the greater power, that he is more powerful, that they are powerless. God is supreme. And so we can go, there are ten different gods here, I can mention their names, there's Hopi, there's Hecate, there's Geb, there's Kepri, there's Hathor, there's Isis, there's Nut or Nut, there's Seth, there's Ra, and then finally Pharaoh. Now let me just mention some of them, just to give you some kind of illustration. Hathor was the god, the Egyptian god of love and protection. How does God show his supremacy over this god called Hathor? We have the plague of the dead animals, the livestock, the cattle. We have Isis, the Egyptian god of medicine and peace. God brings the plague of boils and sores. We have Ra. He is the Egyptian sun god. What does God do? He brings about darkness. Do you get, do you get the point? In each instance, we have ten gods, ten being, I'm reading from uh, the, the Hebrew scholars, ten being the complete number in Hebrew understanding that God is the supreme God over all other gods. I want to mention Pharaoh because Pharaoh represents in the eyes of the people and in his own eyes the ultimate power over Egypt. God brings about the death of the firstborn, showing that Pharaoh is not ultimately the power over Egypt. And so for us today to learn, to receive, to be reminded of the fact that God is in control and determines all things. Now remember, we're looking at the miraculous. He de determines all things and, and sometimes 450 years of slavery. Where were the miracles? Because God, we need to see, in determining all things, having supremacy over all things, He's not subject to any other power. God is sovereign. God will decide when. He will decide how, when miracles will occur. Now I want to pause there. Don't we all long for a miracle? Last night, my whole family was gathered. My son is up from Peter Maritzburg for some other stuff. And we were feeling very sorry for ourselves. Carol had gone to bed, and we all ended up crying together, not understanding why my wife and why their mother is completely lost mentally. And so, the miracle. We long for a miracle. Other people have other needs and desires to see God intervene outside of the laws of nature, outside of that which is anticipated and expected in the normal course of events. But again, to repeat and to understand, and, and saying to my children last night, we need to understand, we need to understand that God has His own purposes that we don't always understand. That God operates according to His eternal wisdom, the things I was saying just now, and He operates according to His glory. And after I preached the sermon this morning, I sat down and I thought to myself, what would be the greater miracle? Would it be that God would heal my wife? Or would it, be, would it be that my children and, 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 and I would be kept by God enough in the faith? I wonder. 
You have your own desires. God not intervening does not mean that he's not supreme. God intervening and God not intervening just is an indication and a lesson that we need to, to learn that God has his own purposes. God is operating in terms of an eternal wisdom, uh, a, a redemption plan that has been unfolding before the foundation of the earth. God operates in accordance and for his glory alone. And so that's my first uh, lesson. Let's learn that God is supreme, that God is supremely uh, over all. Secondly, God always levels the playing field. Maybe we could say, or put that differently, that God acts justly. Let's not forget the context of the 450 years of slavery. Pharaoh and the pharaohs before him had ordered injustice. They had sustained that injustice. They had perpetrated that injustice. They'd lived off the benefits of that injustice. And this on the backs or off the backs of the people of Israel. It was their willing action. It was their active participation. It was their hands that brought about this hardship, this persecution, this, this, this cruelty, this, this treatment that the Israelites had been subjected to. So what are the plagues? Well, we read in the passage that they served as just judgments on the Egyptians for that which they had done to the Israelites and also against God. You see, again, we need to recognize that God's timing and God's ways are not our ways. It is true that God is patient. We read in the New Testament, not wanting anyone to perish. And so there's this timing that, that, that we believe that God should be acting and He doesn't act. And we think that He's taking far too long and, and we think that the, the world is gaining traction and, and God no longer has the supremacy. No, no, not at all. God will bring justice regardless of the situation. God is patient, but in the end God always deals with sin and He always deals with the sinner. And so in 2021, living in a season of, of declining righteousness, we're living in a season where there's a, 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 an explosion, a mushrooming of antagonism and denial of God and His ways. And, and it's, it's called an era of, of liberalism. They will not have the final word. God will have the final word. And so these plagues are sent upon Egypt as a, a, a miniature picture of, of what God will send ultimately to unbelievers in the end time. In Revelation 16, we can see here a repeat of a worse pouring out, described for us by John as the bowls of wrath from the hand of God against the unholy and the wicked. 
the danger of, of men and women and, and young people thinking that, that no, th- th- they've got the upper hand. No, no, no. God, God has the upper hand. God will do justice. God will always level the playing fields. And, and at times, as, as those who are victims of injustice... We become frustrated and, and, and wonder, uh, is this going to never be, be uh, brought to book? God knows, and justice will be done. And then the opposite is also true, as those who are perpetrators of injustice. God does not pass it by. Justice will be served. But I want to move on to a second point. So not only do we learn something about God through these miracles, but miracles also reveal something about Satan. I want us to talk and think a little bit about the evil one, the devil. So miracles happen, have happened, and I've showed you that there are, there are seasons where there are many uh, many, many miracles and, and times when there are no miracles. But miracles in and of themselves are never an indication that God is at work. I want to make that clear in our church this morning. Miracles in and of themselves are not always an indication that God is at work. Simply the extraordinary or the miraculous are not evidence. And so we have examples in, in, in our own day and, and age where we, we have people who claim to do, and, and in some instances they may even be true. I remember some years ago in my early days of ministry, there were those who claimed and could demonstrate that there was gold dust that would form on their mouths or in their, in, on their tongues. Gold dust. It was a miracle. It was a manifestation. That was, uh, there was no natural explanation for it. There were other instances, or there are other instances, where uh, some people will say, well, you know, there's been uh, a limb that has grown, a leg that has grown longer, or it's now the same length as, as the other leg. And, and others have spoken about uh, uh, God doing uh, unusual things. Now, I want us to remember here, God will only do that which is according to His holy will. God can and does do miracles, and again I'm going to repeat the three uh, categories, according to His purposes, according to His eternal will, and for His glory. But not every miracle is from God. That's the point I'm trying to get to. Satan has the ability to counterfeit the work of God, to a level, of course. Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. They're not servants of God. The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. Satan is not equal to God. Satan is a creature made by God. But Satan has certain abilities to do things that deceive men and women. God alone is all-powerful and eternal, but Satan is a clever enemy, and he can do signs and wonders. We even warned in the book of Thessalonians that the Antichrist will deceive many. Chapter 2 and verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, this is the devil, with all power and false signs and wonders. 
the devil's business to deceive. Passage clearly exposes this counterfeiting ability. And, and so we, we, we take this today. We learn from this and, and, and we, we urge one another. We, we help one another. Uh, learn to be discerning. In the biggest cities of not only our country, perhaps even in the smaller cities, crowds are being gathered in their droves by so-called supernatural events. And as I've showed you this morning, they may well be supernatural. But are they from God or are they from the devil? We need to discern. We need to test. Miracles must be from God. It must conform to that which is revealed in His Word. And so our question constantly, do they, does the messenger conform to biblical truth? We don't want to be deceived. I hate anyone in our congregation to be deceived and, and to fall victim to the scheming wiles of the evil one. Shocked to hear on that, on that day those words away from me, you evil doers. And even if we go outside of the Christian context, is it not true that Hindus can run across a hotbed of coals? Is that from God? Or is that from, the, from Satan? I have a third point that I want to make from this passage regarding miracles. Because miracles also reveal something about us. About us people. We reason. We're concerned about the well-being, the spiritual well-being of our loved ones. People that we know. Neighbors and friends and family. And our thinking, our reasoning goes along the lines that I'm concerned about this person's soul. I'm concerned about their standing with God. So God, I have an idea. And my idea is this is that if you could just allow this person, this loved one, to witness a miracle, something supernatural, something unusual, they then will be convinced about the fact that you, are, you God, are real, and they will see their need of salvation. Folk, that's not true. It's not true. Pharaoh and those many around him saw amazing miracles from the hand of God. They remained stubbornly opposed. They grew in their hard-heartedness. Pharaoh grew in his, in his hard-heartedness toward God. The miracles did not bring devotion. It did not bring submission to God. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart is described in these passages in three ways. In some places, we are told that it grew hard. In other places, we're told that he hardened his heart. And in other places, we're told that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And I think all three apply. And, and again, if we, we think about this, we, we, we're seeing here that this taking place of the hardening of heart is in the context of the manifestation of the miraculous. Signs and wonders. God doing the unusual. Pharaoh digs his heels in. It sounds to me like Romans chapter 1. And what does God do in Romans chapter 1? People 
who persistently and repeatedly and stubbornly dig their heels in against God, denying the reality of God, refusing to be thankful to God, God hands them over. Most frightening, I think it's one of the more frightening things in the Bible, where God simply says, you know what, this is what you want? Have it. You, you, you want liberalism? You, 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 you want to do your own thing? Do, do your own thing. You, you, you want to choose yourself to be a different gender than I made you? Well, do, do, go, go ahead. I'll just leave you. God gives them up, we're told. You see, some of us may even complain about God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But the matter on hand is what is really the problem with people. We people have hard hearts. Our natural disposition is one of hard hearts, dead in transgression and sin. We're antagonistic uh, 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 toward God. And, and so Pharaoh was not unique in having a hard heart. It's, it's all of us apart from the intervening miracle of the grace of God. And there, there are consequences to hard hearts. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. But because of your heart... An impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. There are consequences to digging our heels in, any one of us against God. The Bible gives us so many warnings. God demonstrates His grace in another passage where He gives us a glimpse into the suffering and torment of this separation from God in what he calls the place of torment, in, in what we call hell, and what the Bible speaks of as hell, where we discover this man who ends up in this place, realizes the error of his ways, and he, he can do nothing of it. And he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 27, Then I beg you, speaking to Abraham, send, uh, send to him uh, my father's house for our five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Not they have miracles. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. We today, we have the Bible, Genesis to, to, to Revelation. Genesis to Malachi. Matthew to Revelation. You have the scriptures. You have the scriptures. Let them hear them. That's why we preach the Word of God. We emphasize the Word of God. It's the Word of God that, that will come like a hammer and fire and break hard hearts. No, he argued, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Folk, there's a challenge here this morning uh, regarding the state of our hearts as I conclude this message. And, and asking that question this morning, what, what is the status of your heart toward God? What is your disposition toward Him in terms of the willingness in submission to Him and to His way? 
submitting to Him, even in the midst of, of, of hardship and, and difficulty. So that's, that's the one side of this message. There's a challenge. There's, there's the grace of God, a call to repentance so that you avoid the wrath to come. That's grace. But for those of us who are believers, I hope you're encouraged this morning. God can do all His holy will. God will act according to His purposes, according to His eternal wisdom, to the glory of His name. And we will notice as we continue, God willing, in this passage, the plagues eventually expose the saving grace of God. God provides safety from the angel of death for all those who have the blood of the Lamb on the lintels of the doorposts. And then we see the rescue from bondage that follows. God at work, showing and demonstrating all He had planned to do, pointing to what He was going to do and reveal in Jesus and accomplish with Jesus as the Lamb of God. In spite of what you may think, in spite of what I may think, we cannot stand against God. No more than Pharaoh could. God reigns. God will do His holy will. Justice will prevail. Satan will do all he can to deceive you. <coughs> but you can trust God. We can trust Him day by day as we look to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we pray for that peace of mind, that trust of being able to rest in you. But praying today, Lord, especially for any who are of a disposition or inclination of rebellion or resistance to you. Oh, Lord, by your Spirit, won't you convince each and every one that Pharaoh could not stand against you? No one could stand against your will. And Lord, in all of this, the revelation of your grace, seeking men and women to repent from their sin and place their trust in Jesus as their Savior. May that be our experience, each one we pray. And Lord, that you would be glorified. Amen.